This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good morning. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at RAND, and I'd like to welcome you to this Policy Circle conference call to discuss the effect of travel restrictions on terrorism in the U.S. These calls are one of the many benefits of being a Policy Circle member, and we thank you for your support. And now let's go to Brian Michael Jenkins, senior advisor to the president of RAND and one of the world's foremost experts on terrorism and security. Good morning. Uh, Brian, perhaps we could start with a sneak peek at an op-ed you've just written. It's scheduled to be published shortly in The Hill, and the provisional headline, at least, is Why Trump's Travel Restriction Won't Stop Terrorism at Home. Why Why do you think that is so? Well, first of all, let me, let me start off by saying it, it, it's not unreasonable to, to uh, seek a review of immigration and, and refugee uh, vetting procedures. Uh, that makes sense. That's something that uh, the government is, is constantly doing. We, we know that uh, terrorists, in particular jihadist terrorists, pose a multi-layered uh, a threat to the United States and and... Uh, we do have the task of, of controlling our borders and knowing who is go- coming in and, and, and going out. Having said that, um, the the particular executive order, um, which which addresses seven specific nations, uh, ought not to lead to conclusions that by doing so that we are going to truly shield the United States from terrorism. And the the specific issue here, and, and, and the real reason, is that America's jihadist terrorists are imported from abroad. They're not imported from abroad. Um, they are manufactured in the United States. Homegrown, would that so be the term, these Brian? These truly homegrown. Okay. Uh, does that mean that uh, there's no value whatsoever to banning travel from the seven countries that at the moment? No, ab- absolutely not. And, you know, these uh, all of the uh, of six of the seven countries that were named are, are, are conflict zones where there have been uh, ongoing, ongoing bloody civil wars. Certainly that's true in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, uh, Libya, Somalia, and, and, and until uh, just recently and still to a degree Sudan. Uh, that is not the case with with Iran, but Iran has long been considered uh, by Washington to be a top sponsor of of, of terrorism. Um, so, in 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 that sense, it 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 uh, it, it does make uh, it, it is sensible to focus on, on on those particular on those particular countries. Um, however, um, the fact is that. In again, in in looking at um, what we've seen thus far of of terrorist activity in this country, that's inspired by jihadist ideology. Um, it, that is going to have a and at best a marginal effect. And and while we can't predict the future, we can ask ourselves the question: If this uh, executive order had been in effect. Uh, right after 9/11, and remained in effect in the more than 15 years since 9/11. Um, what would it have achieved? How many lives would had would have been saved? Uh, how many attacks would have been prevented? Uh, had this executive order actually shut down um, people coming in from these particular countries? 
over a 15-year period. What's the answer? Well, the answer to that in terms of saving lives, it would uh, unfortunately not have saved a, a single life. What if the ban had included Saudi Arabia? In, in the case of Saudi Arabia, we would have had uh, a, a few people that had been involved in plots, but, but there, no. Let me, let me go into a little bit of the details uh, without, without trying to sound too wonkish here. Um, look, we've had, we've had 20, uh, 20 individuals involved in 16 jihadist terrorist attacks since 2015. Uh, seven of these attacks involved fatalities. Um, the, uh, the others but one in, in involved, um, uh, eight of them involved some injuries. And one was the Times Square bomber who tried to set off a device in Times Square in New York in 2010, and his bomb didn't work. So, first of all, that's good news. We're talking about a 15-year period, and we're talking about only 16 jihadist terrorist attacks. People uh, often don't recall that in the 1970s, the United States was dealing with 50 to 60 terrorist bombings every year. Are you making a distinction between a terrorist attack and a jihadist attack? For example, for example, with the, with the Dillon Roof attack in South Carolina uh, qualify? No, these are I'm talking here exclusively about jihadist terrorist attacks uh, since 9/11, and and that's that's an important distinction. That has been the the most salient threat. It uh, and indeed that has been the focus of of um, U.S. efforts, and clearly that is that is the target of of the president's executive orders. So we're confining it to. Um, to jihadist terrorist attacks. We've got 16 of those in which 89 people uh, 89 people were killed. Tell us some more about the 147 people who have been involved in attacks in the U.S. Uh, where, okay. Were they born in the U.S.? Did they, how did they get here? Keep in mind here, let me, let me make, make a distinction between, between two, two figures here. Um, a total of 147 people either participated in attacks or plotted other attacks that were uncovered and thwarted by the authorities. Mm -hmm. And and that's an important distinction because uh, our domestic intelligence efforts have been remarkably successful. The FBI working with local police are managing to uncover, often with tips from uh, the community itself, uh, have been able to uncover more than 80% of all of these terrorist plots. So that brings us to the 16 attacks that actually took place. In other words, they slipped past intelligence. They came in under the radar. People were able to carry out these attacks, and that gives us, that gives us a total of 20 persons who were actually involved in attacks and 127 persons who were involved in plots but were arrested before the plots took place. If we just, uh, let me just start with the, with, the, uh, with the 20, that's an easy number. Ten of those 20 terrorist attackers were U.S. born, U.S. born citizens. Um, so that leaves the, the other 10. And 
of those, um, most of them were either naturalized U.S. citizens or they were um, they were legal permanent residents or other status. Now, I want to come back to back to our vetting procedures in a minute, but let me then switch over to the 147, the larger number. Of that 147, 105 of them were U.S. citizens, both U.S. born and U.S. naturalized, plus 20 of them were legal permanent residents. Now, why is this important? Because we're looking at people... Um, apart from those who were U.S. born, we're looking at people who have spent a long time in this country, years and years. Eighty-five percent of the terrorists involved in these jihadist plots or attacks lived in the United States um, a long time before carrying out the attack. They radicalized within the nation's borders. They are home, truly homegrown. How many refugees have been coming to America, and, and what portion of them have turned out to be terrorists? All right. Since 9-11, we're probably looking at a number of roughly 700 to 800,000 refugees. It was averaging about fifty to 60,000 a year. Then right after 9-11, it uh, dropped dramatically into the 20s. It has come back up. It's a number controlled by legislation. And so the admitted total, uh, the total admitted uh, for uh, the most recent years has been 70, 70 million. Um, if we look at the entire 15-year period, we're probably looking at an average between 50 and, and 60 million people a year to get us up to that seven to 800,000. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, we're talking about thousands, uh, not millions, to, to get up to that 700, 800,000 total figure since 9-11. Now, of those who have come into the country as refugees, we have a total of three that have entered the country as refugees and subsequently were involved in either a terrorist attack or a terrorist plot. And I say three. One is not entirely clear, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll count them as in. The reason for the lack of clarity on one is one was a Somali national, one of the countries covered by the executive order, but he had been in Kenya for a number of years, and therefore on his entry it shows him as being admitted from, uh, from Kenya. But let's, let's, let's go with his uh, original Somali uh, nationality, and we have, we have uh, two Somalis and, um, and one Iraqi who were involved in terrorist plots or attacks in this country. Um, and the two that are the most recent ones is the, the, um, the, the man who carried out the attack at the shopping mall in St. Cloud, Minnesota, where he began stabbing people until he was, until he was shot. And, and the, uh, the other individual is the, um, the fellow who was involved at, at the car ramming 
in Ohio State University. This was in December of last year where he rammed his car into a crowd, got out, and started stabbing people. No one was killed, and, and he was promptly shot by um, by a security guard. But um, the uh, those are the those are the two. So okay, we're talking we're, we're talking pretty the, we're talking pretty minuscule numbers, I suppose, both on the on the visa we're, visa we're waiver. Talking, or, we're talking. Uh, and and that's the that's the good news. Now, obviously. Um, you know, terrorism. Uh, terrorism works. Terrorism is is calculated to create an atmosphere of fear and alarm. Uh, it often works, um, and uh, it also tends then to underscore, I think, society's broader anxieties about uh, about illegal immigration, and that tends to amplify the per, the perceived threat. I did want to come back to one point that I had mentioned earlier, and this, you know, the executive order was put into place uh, for a period of time during which we are supposed to review our vetting procedures and 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 tighten them further. Um, and and here we have to be a bit realistic because let's go back. Let me go back to these 20 people who actually carried out attacks here. So 10 of them I, I, I put to the side because they're U.S.-born. We can't do anything about them. The other 10, now they came in as, as refugees, they came as, as immigrants, but if I look at those 10, the average age at their, mom, at their point of entry was 12 years old. Mm. And the number of years between their entry into the United States and their involvement in a terrorist plot or carrying out a terrorist attack is 13 years. So the problem we face in our vetting, vetting is, you know, vetting is designed to look at someone and really try to decide, are they pretending to be something they are not? Are they... Are they a terrorist pretending to be a refugee? Um, the problem we face in reality is that we are looking at children and trying to figure out what they are going to be when they grow up and, and, and hit their mid-20s. Let's take a couple of questions, Brian. Perhaps we could patch in John first. Hi, John. Yes, hi. Um, so from what I can gather from this talk and, and some other things I've read is that um, there isn't a lot of counterterrorism value in this ban. Um, I, like many others, I, I'm just openly wondering what will be uh, the overall policy, uh, the overall counterterrorism policy in the Trump administration. Do you see ties into uh, the 1% doctrine, uh, Dick Cheney, and, and sort of the neocon of, of if there's even a small chance we need to do everything possible, or do you think it will be more of a continuation of Obama's drone efforts and more targeted and specific actions for, for counterterrorism? I, I, John, it's a good question. I think we have to make a distinction between um, our counterterrorist uh, efforts uh, abroad, and there I think that uh, it is most likely that uh, military action will continue i mean it is uh, everyone knows that uh, the use of military force by itself 
is not going to end terrorism in the world, uh, but we're talking about uh, our military operating against terrorist organizations in areas where uh, that are in the middle of civil wars, area, ungoverned spaces. Uh, the law doesn't apply there. Military force is certainly going to remain a, a, a component of our counterterrorism arsenal. Um, we, it is unclear yet what changes the new administration may make uh, to our current operations in Syria and Iraq and so on. Various things were discussed uh, during the campaign, in, including uh, that we should partner with the Russians in going after the Islamic State. I'll tell you frankly that I don't see that that buys us much, and it, and it could come with a heavy uh, a heavy cost in terms of American uh, reputation. Uh, it's it's not that it's not that we don't know how to bomb targets in Syria or Iraq. It is that we are very careful in our application of military force. Uh, we don't want um, a lot of mistakes. We've seen a, a case recently where there were civilians killed in Yemen and. The government of Yemen has asked us to temporarily suspend operations. So um, there, there are risks in, in becoming uh, uh, promiscuous with our firepower. The Russian and Syrian bombing of Aleppo, which was ruthless and was described by U.N. officials as a war crime, is not something that we can be associated with. And it would deeply trouble our own military if we were to go down that course. I don't think that's realistic. Can we escalate uh, with troops, American boots on the ground? Uh, some people have recommended that. I, again, think there there is caution. Uh, there may be some other things that we can do that will increase our military role. Um, but... There are no easy options here, so I expect that to continue. That is dis uh, uh, can be distinguished from what we are going to do at home. And uh, in the United States, uh, various things have been discussed, including, which has been done, um, banning travel, temporarily banning travel, in this case, from certain Muslim countries. Uh, this has been described in... in, in, in and some of the rhetoric is simply banning the entry of, of Muslims. I don't. I can't see us going down that route. Um, it also has uh, various things have been uh, surfaced in terms of we will register Muslim uh, Muslims living in the country. In the country now, you know, in the immediate wake of of 9/11, there was a program which obliged. Um, um, Muslim uh, males; uh, these were these were immigrants. You cannot apply this to U.S. citizens. Um, Muslim males of military age to register, and tens of thousands did. Not one was ever found to be a a, a, a terrorist. No one was charged with with terrorism. Uh, some were found uh, guilty of 
visa violations and, and, and were deported. Uh, but the program was abandoned as, as not being productive. So I don't know if we're going to, to go down that path again. Uh, very good. John, any follow-up? Uh, no, thank I just want to thank you again for, for the talk. It's been very informative. Thanks, John. We have another caller. Jenny is on the line. Uh, hi, Jeffrey. This is uh, Jenny. Um, and hi, Brian. Thank you for the uh, informative uh, information. I wanted to understand a little bit more because I've seen a lot of people talk about this, but really no specific response. In the seven countries that Trump banned, there are neighboring countries that he didn't ban because he had businesses there. Um, even in India and the Philippines, um, the risk could be as high in terms of if Trump were to say um, about terrorists, Muslim going to a country, et cetera, et cetera. So, Brian, if you were to be a part of the Trump administration, what would your argument be when the opposing side are questioning um, Trump or his administration about that? So I just wanted to understand from your perspective in terms of, uh, you know, of, of, of that part. Let me preface my answer by underscoring uh, the fact that I am ferociously nonpartisan. Uh, that often actually uh, works out to be that I manage to offend everybody. But um, I, 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 I really am, am nonpartisan and, and really concerned really with, with uh, using the research to develop facts upon which the policymakers can make their hopefully in, informed decisions. Now, to your specific question, um, why aren't other countries on, on the list? I'm, you know, there, there are some good reasons why these countries are on the list, because, as I said, um, they, uh, they are engaged in, in internal conflicts, and we are dealing with the effluence of those conflicts in, in Europe and the United States in, in terms of, of terrorist spillover. Um, others, uh, but they're also on the list because they can't fight back. And, and I... I Quite honestly, I think it has less to do with, with uh, the president's uh, personal business interests, and it has more to do um, with uh, calculations as to the cost of trying to implement a ban on, on certain countries that really would have consequences. So, for example, uh, people say, well, what about Saudi Arabia? Most of the hijackers in, in, in 9-11 came from Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi was involved in a terrorist plot in Dallas after 9-11. Uh, shouldn't they be on the list? Shouldn't Pakistan be on the list? Shouldn't some of these other countries? And we can go through, we can go through the list. And the, and the answer there is these are large countries. They are allies of the United States, even if at times problematic allies. Um, the Saudis have hundreds of billions of dollars invested in the United States. Beyond the economic issues, um, we work closely with these governments in terms of the exchange of intelligence. We are, uh, we are allied with the Saudis now in military operations in in Yemen, uh, 
the Saudis, uh, the Gulf countries support our uh, uh, our air campaign in Syria and Iraq. So there would be a real cost in terms of cooperation and more uh, against terrorism, and more broadly in terms of our strategic relations with these countries. But it underscores a dilemma, because the argument made for the ban is, I mean, people will say to me, Brian, you know, you're looking at history. That was then. We are worried about the future. You're telling us people didn't come in from some countries. We're telling you that we believe that in the future we're going to see uh, a bigger onslaught of, of terrorists pouring into this country from the Middle East. And the answer to that is, if you believe that, and it's a matter of belief, I mean, I'm not recognized in the field of, of prophecy, uh, if you believe that, then the ban on the seven is inadequate. Then if your so paramount mission is to keep people out of the country, even if there is the statistically infinitesimal chance that some of them might turn out to be terrorists, then the ban is inadequate. Then, in fact, you do have to implement a ban that will affect far more countries than are on this list. Thanks, Brian. Uh, thanks, Jenny. Great to have you on the call. We have a, a, an email question from Alexander. Assuming the executive order remains suspended, it would appear to be high value for ISIL or some other jihadist organization to attempt an attack with an individual or individuals who would otherwise have been covered by the executive order. Is this how ISIL thinks about things, and to what extent is it an achievable tactic? Uh, I know you covered a bit of that in your prior answer, Brian, but uh, maybe you could uh, repeat. It, it, it certainly is a, a possibility. I mean, look, our, our operative presumption is that at, at, at any given moment, uh, both ISIL and al-Qaeda and their affiliates are thinking about how they can carry out attacks against the United States abroad or here in the United States. Uh, both organizations, both ISIL and al-Qaeda, are active online. They have uh, very slick online magazines, the Beak in the case of, of uh, ISIL, uh, Inspire in the case of al-Qaeda. Uh, the, their online publications and other propaganda constantly exhorts individuals in this country to carry out an attack. And so in answer to, to Alexander's question, uh, the view is it is not that they will consider now a particularly opportune time to attack. It is that they have been trying to uh, carry uh, inspire attacks in this country um, for uh, the entire period of, of, of their history, um, and and that is that is our presumption. And when they get somebody to respond, then they do claim they do claim credit for that. Uh, but it's not as if they have uh, 
a, a, an army of sleepers hanging around inside the United States that they can then, in a sense, dial up and say, okay, now. How can, uh, how can you be sure of that, Brian? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I can't prove a negative. We were worried about armies of sleepers uh, right after 9-11. Uh, as I say, people were registered, people were investigated, and of the uh, of the people who were who were investigated, we found uh, you know we found no evidence, no evidence of any underground operation, uh, underground network. In fact, most of the most of the attacks uh, in the United States have, have not only been by self-radicalized home, home, homegrown uh, extremists, um, but they have been uh, a, a lot of them uh, have been one-offs. That is, a single individual or a very tiny conspiracy—a husband and wife or two brothers—in the case of the Boston. A bombing, husband and wife, in the case of the San Bernardino shooting, uh, but uh, the others, most all of the others, involve a single individual. Now, I know there's a tendency to call uh, the uh, to label them lone wolves. The media loves to do it. I think it's a, I think frankly it's a stupid term. First of all, it romanticizes the the, the these perpetrators and. They are not the skillful uh, lone hunters that, that we think of when, when we look at lone wolves in nature or in literature. Um, a lot of them are very troubled individuals uh, who embrace this ideology because it resonates uh, with their own view of the world, many of them have deeply troubled pasts, uh, histories of aggression, substance abuse, in some case uh, uh, a mental, uh, mental illness, and they put on an Al-Qaeda or uh, uh, an ISIL t-shirt because it will, it, it will justify uh, their actions and, in a sense, give them more prestige. Uh, that's a very, very different picture from uh, uh, from underground armies, uh, sleepers, and some of these other notions that we have. For which, as I say, we have not found, we haven't found any evidence. And the authorities, again, have been remarkably successful in penetrating even these tiny conspiracies and picking up these individual. Uh, offenders. Mm -hmm. Brian, in, in these closing moments, do you have any advice for what the uh, new administration should be focused on to defend the homeland, uh, particularly if this, if this measure ends up not holding up in court? Well, I, I would say here that, look, um, again, uh, does a review make sense? And the answer is a, a review of, of uh, entry procedures into the United States, and the answer is Yes, it, it always makes sense. It's not something that we do at a one-time basis. This is a dynamic situation. Uh, it's not an engineering problem we're going to solve once and for all. And so we, we should be constantly reviewing our, our efforts. Um, however, 
in 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 making in making some of these decisions to do things um i think we have to be very very cautious in 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 not yielding to what might be popular sentiments at a moment or 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 doing things that are really going to cost us in terms of our overall effort uh, uh against terrorism uh i'm not one bit squeamish uh, about going after about going after terrorists. I'm a former soldier myself, and and I I think we are determined to to destroy these uh, to destroy these groups, and and that should be our objective to the extent that we can. Uh, at the same time, in going about it, uh, you have to look at what has worked. What has worked is since 9-11, as a result of U.S. and other efforts, there is unprecedented international cooperation among the intelligence services and law enforcement organizations worldwide. Uh, That has made the operating environment for terrorists extremely hostile. We have to preserve that. We don't want to do something that is going to interrupt that international cooperation in using military force the united states historically has done so in the context of alliances these are important for both political purposes internationally and they also are valuable for operational reasons we don't want to do things that are going to repel our own allies away from our efforts. So in all of these measures, one has to look at, uh, look at what is being done, what is the actual gain, and what costs are we going to have to pay in order to make that gain. And it becomes a, a, a judgment to make calls that are going to possibly alienate assistance that we want and not gain as much, that doesn't provide a net benefit. Very good. Uh, we have one uh, last question that comes by email from Lean. Uh, could gun control laws be broadened to prevent radicalized individuals from carrying out their attacks? You know, certainly I, I think gun control has to, uh, you know, has, has to be addressed on its, on, it, on its own merits. To be sure, if, if we look at, as I said, you know, 89 people killed by terrorists. In fact, uh, of those, uh, three were killed by, by bombs, 86 were killed, uh, 86 were killed by, by guns. Uh, but that comes out to about five or six a year over a 15-year period in a country that has an annual average of about 15,000 criminal homicides. So while, I, you know, I, I, I do have some, some personal uh, uh, issues when it, when it comes to, to gun control, at the same time, it is the terrorist contribution to violence in this country is so minuscule that it cannot be the, the most persuasive argument. Second, I do have to point out that in, in a number of the European countries, for example, in France and in Belgium, 
where we've seen some horrific uh, uh, terrorist attacks carried out by uh, uh, by individuals armed with automatic weapons, AK-47s, that these countries have much stricter gun controls than the United States, and because of the unique uh, criminal connection of the terrorists in particular in France and Belgium and some of the other countries, they nonetheless have been able to arm themselves. Now, with 300 million weapons floating around in the United States, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain that we can keep a, keep a weapon out of a determined uh, a, a determined terrorist uh, hand. Uh, Sad news, Brian. That's but, uh, identical, but that's, but that's re- the reality. It's realistic, exactly. Uh, thank you, Brian, for your time thank and insights. Thank you. Uh, thanks to uh, the Policy Circle and Rand Next members and friends who joined us on the call. Uh, if you'd like, if you'd like more information on u- upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast. You can, of course, visit RAND.org or contact us directly at policy underscore circle at RAND.org. This concludes our call. Thank you for participating, and have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.